1: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science Podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have the real pleasure to talk to the author of Brown is the New White, How the Demographic Revolution Has Created a New American Majority. The book is from the New Press, and the author is Steve Phillips. Steve Phillips, how are you doing today?
0: Doing good. Thanks for having me on.
1: Yeah, it's a real pleasure to have read the book and to have you on. And before we get to it, as, as always, want to give you the chance to talk a little bit about yourself, um, where you are now, and, and maybe where you were previously. Uh, would you just share a little bit about yourself?
0: Sure. Um, I'm uh, currently a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, and in, in the past, I was the, on the school board in San Francisco in the 90s, um, and uh, also created uh, uh, Power Pack Plus, uh, which helped to... Run independent expenditure campaigns for Barack Obama, Cory Booker, and Kamala Harris, and now I guess I'm mainly a writer and an author.
1: Yeah, and I I really wanted to start with talking a little bit more about that. You know, unlike uh, many of the scholars uh, writing about politics, you've actually run for office, um, and you recount in the book some stories from your life as a as a politician. Uh, Would you recount a little bit for us about uh, what it was like to run for office in San Francisco and and maybe something that you you learned from your run that uh, informed your writing on the subject now?
0: Yeah, I think that um, one of the things that I learned was the dynamics of really trying to put together a majority coalition in the context of an electorate going through demographic changes. And so actually the and this was you know, I ran first in 1992, um, which was you know obviously more than 20 years ago, and that. Uh, San Francisco has continued to have a lot of changes demographically. So when I ran, uh, at the time, the majority of voters for school board race, um, even though the city was a majority, uh, people of color were approaching that, majority of the voters were white and from the wealthier part of town. Um, And so I did have to think about how to craft my own message and my own identity in the context of appealing to that sector of the electorate. Um, But subsequently to that, uh, the country and the state and the city have changed so dramatically that it actually is possible to uh, put together a a multiracial coalition that is founded on the communities of color now. And that's really the driving message of my book is that we no longer have to um, cater to uh, the white swing voter, which has been the historical approach in politics, and that now what Obama showed and what we've seen in uh, in California as well, that you can build an electoral majority on the cornerstones of the growing populations of people of color.
1: Now, would you talk just a little bit about, before you get to the, the strategy and the, the in some ways the thesis of your book, would you talk a little bit more about the, the typical strategy that has been used, what, what I think you... Present as somewhat misguided. Moving ahead, Um, this this strategy that typically focuses on the white swing voter as as the where to put money, where to put resources, where to put uh, the the strategic time of a campaign. Would you tell us a little bit about that that approach that has been so dominant over the last number of years?
0: Right. So um, I actually talk in the book what I call the tyranny of the white swing voter, and I think that largely the composition of the Electorate, which is largely the composition of the white community in the in the, in the country. Like within the uh, 40s and 50s, the country was close to 90 percent white, and so whites being divided roughly into you know thirds and broad strokes of progressive, conservative, and then in the middle. And so historically, elections have been all about each of those clusters of whites, the progressives and the conservatives competing for the votes in the middle. And that's still how people think about like the you know the, the presidential election, you have to pivot to the general win over the independents. And it has to do with uh, really moderating your politics in ways so as not to alienate those in the middle uh, um, has really been the guiding framework of how politics has traditionally been done in this country.
1: Now, your book is also about the demographic changes. That have been going on and that you've just alluded to. Would you explain a little bit more about these population changes and why they matter today, not just in 30 years from now, which is the way in which these demographic changes have been presented over the last couple of years? This is something that you suggest uh, should affect strategy and, and political thinking today in 2016, not 20 years from now. Would you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Right, exactly. And so my analysis and and argument is that Obama's election and even more importantly his re-election marked the tipping point in terms of the constellation of a majority within the country. And that a, a key part of that, which is actually gets too little attention, is that there has always been... I call a meaningful minority of whites who have voted at least democratic, if not more fully progressive exit polls from since 1976 show that the uh, average white vote for the Democrat is 40%. Obama got 39%. And so if you have that component, that's when we look at having an immediate contemporary majority and not just down the road when people of color become the majority. So since the 60s, the country has gone from 12% people of color to 38% people of color today. And so that population has grown so large, it was 28% of all the uh, uh, voters in 2012 will likely be 29 or even 30% in 2016. So now that we have that large a population, which has historically uh, voted Democratic, Uh, 81% of people of color voted for Obama, that you have then the components of a contemporary electoral majority, what I'm calling the new American majority. So it's 39% of whites, 81% of people of color. That's 51% of all eligible voters in the country.
1: Now, this is not just numbers. This also affects um, things like the Composition of a party platform and and issues that are going to be promoted. Um, how might progressives put this coalition together to actually win elections? What what would this? How would this change the way uh, a campaign would would uh, promote itself and and would try to uh, attract this this new arrangement? This fifty one percent that you suggest could be held together. What would be the approach that that one might take?
0: Well, a key component of it is putting forward and embracing enthusiastically a policy agenda which speaks to the lives and the conditions of the growing communities of color. And so if you look, for example, at the 2014 Senate races, you had uh, many, if not most, of the Democratic candidates up for re-election running away from the president, running running away from immigration reform and not being willing to put forward those types of issues because of their fear that that would alienate um, the white swing voter. And so you had a situation in Colorado where um, the incumbent Senator, uh Udall there was refusing to talk about immigration reform and he was really just emphasizing his opponent's record on choice issues as, a, as an attempt to peel off the suburban white woman voter. And as a result, he failed to inspire and mobilize the large numbers of Latinos within Colorado. And so the Republican drop-off from 2008 to 2014, uh, uh, he was elected in 2008, Republican drop-off was just 7,000 votes. The Democratic drop-off, voters who were not inspired, did not hear issues speaking to their concern, was 300,000 votes. And so that's how the Democrats lost the election in Colorado. And so, across the board on issues of immigration and health care and inequality. The key is to be uh, aggressive and uh, full-throated in embracing a policy agenda, which speaks to the lives and the conditions of people in these communities.
1: Now, conservatives see many of the same demographic changes that you observe and and they've written in the past um, uh, about how this could inform the strategy that the Republican Party might use and conservatives is, as well. What will make it difficult for conservatives to win the support of these voters that you're talking about, given uh, conservatives are, are developing similar kinds of, of pleas and and, and and they see a, a different kind of coalition than the one that you put forward? What's going to make it difficult for conservatives to do this?
0: Well, what's... With- Makes it difficult is nominating a candidate for president who wants to round up 12 million Mexicans and ship them out of the country, and to ban all Muslims and to demonize uh, people of color, uh, people of color in general, and the first African American president. So Donald Trump is really upsetting the script for the Republicans in ways that uh, is going to be kind of fascinating to watch. But that should not be a uh, cause for complacency on the part of the Democrats and the progressives, is that there is too much of the success of Obama, frankly, I think has created a sense of false security on the part of the Democrats. And if you look at the, the last chapter of that book, where it's called Conservatives Can Count, and looking at their 2013 autopsy report, around why they lost in 2012, very explicit around steps they needed to take to reach out to and embrace and include people of color. They are much more aggressive, frankly, in terms of elevating and promoting uh, candidates of color. Um, uh, Many of the statewide uh, elected people of color across the country are Republicans, right? New uh, New Mexico and Nevada and South Carolina. And so uh, they half or part of the Republican Party understands and grasps and is trying to move in the direction of being more inclusive and being more intentional around uh, engaging people of color. The Koch brothers putting millions of dollars into Libre, a Latino outreach organization. So it, the Democrats are at risk of being outflanked or at least having incursions into their constituency by the conservatives if they are not vigilant and aggressive in terms of investing in great um, and great sums in those communities. Uh, but it will be fascinating to see how it plays out with Trump, who's playing an entirely different game than those who want to build a majority coalition.
1: Now, as you just mentioned, we're, we're a portion of the way through the 2016 presidential race. How would you assess the strategy that progressives are using? Um, and, and, and what do you expect as we move beyond the party primaries to the general election contest um, uh, about the, the strategy? Do you expect it to adhere? to to what has been the tradition over the last series of elections? Or do you see traction for the approach that you have been suggesting in the book? Well,
0: I think it's, it's early to draw full conclusions. And so the reason I wrote the book was because I was alarmed that too few people who fund and run democratic campaigns really have internalized or understood what Obama's elections represented. And you hear a lot of talk about Obama was a one-off and a singular historic figure, and we could never repeat that kind of turnout again. So therefore, we have to go back to trying to win over um, the more conservative white swing voters. Democratic Party base is 46% people of color. And so the real test around how much they grasp the significance of this coalition is why they're putting their money where their mouth is. And that is half of the money that the Democrats spending going to go into targeting organizing reaching out to communicating with the communities of color so there's some positive signs and progress i think from both the democratic presidential candidates at this point um, in terms of clinton and sanders um, talking more explicitly about things like institutional racism but the real test is going to be are they going to invest really hundreds of millions of dollars in terms of engaging with those communities. And then a a very significant test will be, are they going to, what I'm calling, desegregate the office of the vice presidency? Never had a vice president of color. That's strictly a calculation around what you think the electorate will tolerate. And so both in terms of uh, sending a signal to those communities, but also frankly in terms of their own uh, electoral prospects of inspiring and galvanizing this new electorate. It, it, they would it would behoove them to put on the ticket an inspiring, exciting, young, younger candidate of color.
1: Now, without asking you for some name recommendations, of which I'm sure you you have some, I wonder if we could maybe just take a step back from the the sort of the subject of the book to your writing of the book. Most of the people who who uh, come on and and talk about their work are based at universities, and I think we have a pretty clear understanding of the process and the objectives and goals of, of writing a a book when you are employed by a university. I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about the, the process of of writing a book about politics, not from the uh, not from sitting in a university setting, but from the perspective that that you bring and, and uh, how that might have informed the way in which you wrote about the subject matter and the way in which you're now able to talk about the work. Would you, Take that that step back and and uh, talk a little bit about just the the writing of the book.
0: Yeah, it was a good and um, educational iterative process. And so originally, I was you know motivated because I did not uh, think that the people in uh, charge of politics really understood the direction we were what we needed to go in, and I really wanted to make the case um, that uh there was in fact this majority. I mean I my own roots were within the Rainbow Coalition in the eighties where I saw the potential of a multiracial coalition that was explicitly um uh embracing social justice and wanted to document that. And so I but having never having written a book before, I didn't know that much about the process. And I thought, oh you know, I could just write this down and then I could go and you know, even self publish if necessary and run around the country and talk about it. And so what was very helpful was being able to, to connect with and get the um buy-in and and support of the New Press who that's a lot of what their work is just bringing uh, ideas and works and putting them into the public um discourse. And so the the back and forth and the discussion and the iterative you know, thought I submitted the first draft in January 2015 and thought I was done, but it's my <laughs> own naivety. Um, and then we went back and forth, so then you get back significant edits from them after a month or a couple of months, submitted another version in April, again, edits, another version submitted in uh, June and then August. And so that iter- iterative process of both them giving feedback, them pushing, asking questions, my accepting, pushing back on things that I thought were essential to have, um, I think that whole process was very beneficial in terms of being able to get to a point um, where it was uh, in the you know the vein and the character of a type of book that would land within the uh, public discourse in a way with maximum impact.
1: And and in fact, the the book has uh, I believe uh, reached the New York Times bestseller list. So we can congratulate you on not just the publication of the book, but also that great um, achievement. Again, the title of the book, Brown is the New White, How the Demographic Revolution Has Created a New American Majority, again published by The New Press. The author is Steve Phillips. Steve Phillips, thank you so much for your time today.
0: Thanks for having me on.